Last week, we began the intro to Acts. We looked at Acts chapter 1. And remember, Luke's purpose in writing was to accurately uh, document God's plan executed by the Holy Spirit's power through Jesus and continuing on through God's people. His primary message was that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the ruler of the world. He's the King, the coming King. And nobody is beyond the embrace of his love. Nobody's beyond the embrace of his power. He was written to Theophilus, which means friend of God. He was a noble, uh, uh, like a, a noble Gentile official. Some people believe in and around Antioch. And we, we kind of covered a little bit last week, and I'll mention it later, that one of the requirements for these apostles was to have been with him from the beginning to witness the resurrection and to be chosen by him, specifically chosen by him. And we looked at Luke 24. If you remember, at the end of Luke, Luke did not realize, I don't believe, based on how he wrote, that he was going to write a second volume. But he did. But at the end of Luke, it finishes with the ascension. Acts begins with the ascension. And so he's still writing to Theophilus, both of them written to Theophilus. But Luke 24 really documents the, uh, the finished work of Christ in redemption and the unfinished work of Christ in collection of the saints, or uh, going out and collecting the elect. And there was 120 followers in Jerusalem, uh, a couple of hundred up in Galilee, and the disciples continued that work. And the theme of all their preaching, based if you go in and you look at the messages in Acts, is the risen Christ. In fact, when Paul went and was put on trial in front of Festus and Felix and Agrippa, if you remember when they were discussing it, they say this man simply shouldn't be here. He's done nothing worthy of death. It's some matter about the way, saying some guy died, but now he's alive. And that's what Paul was there for because he talked about the resurrection. And that was the theme, the risen Christ of all of it. And remember, Luke divided Acts into six sections. Each section kind of ended with this little phrase, the Word of God increased or the church increased. The Word of God multiplied, the church multiplied. And so the first section was uh, chapter 1 through 6, verse 7. And at the end, he's talking about the church at Jerusalem and the Word of God continued to increase. The second section was 6, 8 through 9, 31, and it encompassed all Israel, Judea, and Samaria. And it's the church multiplied in 9, 31. 9, 32 through 12, 24 was really about the church at Antioch, which would be the first great missionary church. The Word of God increased and multiplied in 12, 24. 12, 25 through 16, Verse 5, it's about Asia Minor, and it ends with 16.5, the church increased in number daily. 16.6 through 19.20 was the other great Gentile cities, and at the end of 19.20 it says the word continued to increase and prevail. And then 19 through 28 is really about it going to Rome, and it ends with Paul uh, in prison, and it says that he preached the kingdom of God without hindrance. So, really... The church is tied in to the Word. Have you noticed that? The church, primary responsibility of the church is to continue collecting 
the elect by preaching the Word of God. Romans 10 says, How will they uh, hear if nobody goes? How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. And if you go back to Isaiah 52, 7, the good news, it says, is forgiveness and our God reigns. Our God reigns. That, that, that word good news is the word euangelion. I've shared this with you guys before. And it was used, it was a secular term used when a guy would stand up in a city square. There was a little uh, square thing he would stand up on and he would be the evangelist, the euangelion guy who would stand up and he would shout to the city, behold, a new emperor is born. Behold, an emperor won a great victory. Or behold, he would say, uh, a new emperor is coronated. Those were the only three times that that square was used. And that good news was that an emperor was going to be there because the emperor took care of the people. And so what did the disciples say, or not the disciples, sorry, what did the angel say in Luke chapter 2? It says, Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, or good news. They are telling the good news that our God reigns. The Messiah has come. And, and so at the end of chapter 24 in Luke, when he finishes up, he tells them what they are to preach. Remember last week we looked at four things from the first 11 verses. We are to preach, teach His message. We are to, to teach His priority. We are to trust His power and we are to follow His plan. Well, teaching His message, what was the message He told them at the end of Luke 24? We mentioned it last week. They are to go preach two things. Forgiveness and what else? Come on. Somebody. Repentance. Repentance and forgiveness. Did they do that? Yes, they did. Because when... When uh, the, the guy said, Peter, tell us what to do. What did he say? Did he say, you don't have to do anything. You're just forgiven. He said, repent. Today in our culture, there is a group and a movement that has swollen that says to preach repentance is adding works to salvation. That's ludicrous. Repentance means you are going this direction and you realize you're going the wrong way and you want to go that direction. That's repentance. The realization that I'm headed in the wrong direction and I want to go in the right direction. I have no ability to get there on my own. So I cry out to God. I say, God, I'm going in the wrong direction. I want to go in the right direction. Help me. And He does. That's repentance. It's not what you do, it's what He does in you. And I was telling Brad before uh, the, the time today that today's devotional I read was about how we are always enslaved to something. And what, what Christ calls us to do is to trade our enslavement to sin or the world, or whatever you want to call it, to being enslaved to Him. Because in Him there's true freedom. We're still enslaved to Him to do His work. That's why people, people misconstrue the whole idea of rest in Hebrews. 
Rest in Hebrews doesn't mean, okay, I'm a Christian, I can kick back, I don't have to do anything. That's so many people think that because of this false narrative about repentance and serving our God. Serving is not to earn favor with Him. Serving is because He redeemed us to serve. That's what He did. So we preach the right message. It's His message. It's repent and receive the forgiveness of sin. That's what He said. So that's the message we looked at last week. And second, we are to preach His priority. What was His priority? For 40 days He was on the earth after His resurrection and He taught them about what? The kingdom of God. That is the spiritual kingdom of God. That's what He taught them. That's what they were to focus on. That was to be the priority. Matthew 6.33, very beginning of His ministry almost to them, He tells them what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about your money. You worry about the kingdom of God. Seek first His kingdom, and I'll take care of all this other stuff. And that's what he tells him to preach. That's his priority. He didn't teach him about overthrowing Rome. He didn't teach him about feeding the poor. He, uh, those were good things to, to feed the poor, uh, to do miracles. But he, he talked to them about the priority of the kingdom of God. Then we looked at 4 through 7, where he says, Trust his power. Back in uh, Ezekiel, he said he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. In John 7, he says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me. Out of you is going to flow living water. What is that water? It's the Holy Spirit. And he says, you need to trust my power. He said, wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't try to do it on your own. That's one huge issue we face today. We go out and we try to do God's work without God's power. We try to go do things for Him without Him. And you go, he's there, but you're operating on your agenda. Peter did that several times. Other guys did that. They tried to go and do things in their own flesh. And every time they did, it didn't work out well. So he says, you've got to trust his power. And then the final thing was follow his plan. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we see through Acts, that's what Luke lays out. It starts in Jerusalem, moves through Samaria, chapter 8, into Judea, all of Israel, and then all the way to Rome by the end of the chapter, uh, encompassing in between um, uh, Jerusalem, Gentiles bringing Gentile cities uh, in East Asia all the way to Rome. So that's last week. Well, this week, as we look at um, chapter 1, 12 through 26, I want you to think about this. Am I God's man? Am I God's man? I mean, each one of you are in here for a reason. Each one of you are here because God sovereignly wants you here. And He's always used flawed men. Even going back, you think about Moses. Think about Abraham. Go back to Abraham. Abraham was a liar. Isaac, his son, was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses, a murderer. And yet, He used Moses to part the Red Sea. And when he called the disciples, he used them even though they were uneducated, unimportant to the world, no influence in the world. He says, I'm going to use you guys. 
And they served him. And when he said, do something, then he, he liked using them. You know, Jesus could have said to the rock, uh, move rock, when he told Lazarus to come forward. He could have just made the rock move. He turned water into wine. He could have easily moved that stone if he wanted, but he didn't want to. He wanted his disciples to do it with him. So he says, hey guys, go move the rock. He let them be a part. And he wants to use you in bringing the elect home. Bringing people into the kingdom. And so many of us think it's only the job of the professionals. It's only the job of the pastor. It's only the job of the staff person, the ministry leader. It's all of our responsibility because he brings us into his family to do that. And so he says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a second. So often we feel, man, I wish I could do this, or I wish I could do this. I wish I was better. Oh, I can't do this for God. None of these disciples we would have picked that he picked, except maybe Judas. We might have picked Judas because he was probably the smartest one of the bunch. And so, are we God's men? Well, in this section today, 12 through 26, I want you to see three things that really he reveals here in these men. And I think those principles can apply to me and you too if we're God's men. The first thing is God's men follow Jesus with an abiding love. And by that, abiding means walking with. So it's a love that kind of walks with Him and does what He says. Why? Because He says, if you love Me, you will what? Keep My commandments. Yeah, you'll keep My commandments. You'll obey Me. So if He tells you to do something, you'll do it. So the first thing we see about them is they follow Jesus with an abiding love for God's men. Second, God's men... See their circumstances through a scriptural lens. In other words, what's going on around you is not just happenstance. God is revealing something and His purposes are being you know, kind of worked out. So, in the last few weeks, a lot of people have been, why isn't God stopping this? Why is God allowing this to happen? Do you think the disciples thought this? When he was being crucified, tortured, they're watching the guy that said he's, good, he, he's the Messiah. He tried to tell them it was going to happen and they didn't hear it. Why? Because they didn't have ears to hear. They didn't want to hear that. Have you ever been like that? You're in a conversation with somebody and they're trying to tell you something and you are just not hearing it because you're so bent on another thought process about whatever you're talking about that you don't even grasp them saying what they're saying to you. Happens all the time with my wife. You guys know what I'm talking about. Your wife's trying to tell you something. Are you hearing me? Are you listening? Yeah, I'm listening. Tell me what I said. Oh, no. Now you got to go back. And you might even spit out the words, but you have no idea the context or how it works into what she was saying. The circumstances of your life have purpose in God's redemptive plan. I want you to hear that again. The circumstances in your life 
have purpose in God's redemptive plan. So whether they're good circumstances or bad circumstances, they're God's circumstances to shape you and use you the way He individually wants to use you. And, and so... Can you repeat that one more time? Yeah. The circumstances in your life are, are, are used by God to shape you for His purposes and do what He wants. That's all. He, the, we just tend to see our circumstances and, and whether it's um, health condition, whether it's a, um, just a financial situation, whether it's a relational disruption, whatever those things are, they are being used to shape you for God's purposes. And we have to learn to see them through the lens of Scripture. Because Scripture addresses everything that we have to deal with principally. In. Every, I mean, you go through Scripture, sin is sin, people are people, the same things get, just get rehashed over and over. And God addresses a lot of those things. Whether it's greed, adultery, lust, immorality, whatever it is, you see it all in Scripture. And so, that's the second thing. So, following Jesus with an abiding love, seeing uh, our circumstances through a scriptural lens. And third, God's men, and guys, this is so important, are called, chosen and called to serve a sovereign Lord. So, you're chosen... If your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you are chosen to serve God for a finite period of time here on earth. That time is undisruptible by Satan. It doesn't matter whether it's COVID, whether it's a Mack truck, it does not matter. God has a specified period of time for you to serve him here on earth and once that time is up it doesn't matter whether you're in fort knox and surrounded with all kinds of security systems you have the best health care in the world when that time is up and he calls you home you're going home right and so we're chosen and called to serve a sovereign lord we need to remember his sovereignty we forget it so easily and so we see that in the selection of the guy who's going to make the 12th because Judas is no longer there. And so uh, let's read the text 12 through 26, and then we're going to come back and I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about each one of these, okay? <laughs> Starting in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now in those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide 
to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Isn't that a lovely picture right there? That's just... (laughs) (laughs) And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two Two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May God bless the reading of his word. Back in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, where were they? They were on the Mount of Olives. Some of you guys have been on the Mount of Olives. You've been over there with me. We've stood on it, and I want you to picture it. Mount of Olives sits about 400 feet up there in Jerusalem. So you can look down, and you see the temple temple wall, the east gate. And remember, the Mount of Olives is east of the eastern gate. So when the sun comes up, you see that beautiful picture of the Jerusalem and the gate and all that stuff. And they were, based upon Luke's passage and this passage here, they were on the back side. Remember, it was toward Bethany when Jesus ascended. And so that's where they were. And it says they returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, were they from Jerusalem? No. But they went there. Why? Because that's where He told them to go. They were obedient. They followed Jesus with an abiding love. And an abiding love is an obedient love. They obeyed Him. They went to Jerusalem. He said, like I said earlier, if you love Me, you'll obey Me. And it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Now some people have twisted this and said they had to pray in order to get the Holy Spirit. That is not in the text. When you read it, that's not what it it, it says. All it says was all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, my grandmother was a Pentecostal. She raised my dad in a Pentecostal church, her and my grandfather. And Pentecostals believe that prayer is a condition in order to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You have to ask for it. Now, that is not in Scripture anywhere. That belief started at least in this country in the early 1900s. 
And they were praying not to get the Holy Spirit. They were praying to converse with Jesus. Because remember, He had gone. The only way they could converse with Him was how? Remember what they said? When Thomas saw Him, he said, My Lord and my God. They understood. They missed Him. They loved Him. They wanted to spend time with Him. So it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Now notice it says who was there. It says Mary, the mother of Jesus, and His brothers. Now that's interesting because what did His brothers think back in John chapter 7? Yeah, they thought, he, they thought He'd lost it. They were worried about Him. But now, James and Jude, who wrote James and Jude in the New Testament, were there with them and with the, with the disciples. Now notice they're not leaders. They just mention them kind of as an aside at the end with Mary. But what happened between John chapter 7 and right here, where they're now devoted, they're there waiting on the Holy Spirit with the disciples. They're part of the 120 followers that are there. What happened? Well, 1 Corinthians happened. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. It says, Jesus appeared to James. That was the brother who ends up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church. I find that interesting. Can you imagine that day? Hey, bro. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> you know, you're just thinking about how he might have appeared to him. <laughs> See, you thought I was kidding, didn't you? You thought I was wrong. I mean, think about how, I, I just think about it. See, we, sometimes I think we forget the human aspect of Jesus. He was fully human and fully God. And he came back and loved his brothers and shared with them the story after the resurrection, and they believed. And both of them, look what Jude wrote, contend earnestly for the faith. James, if you don't have works, your faith is dead. These were, I mean, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem now. And here they are being devoted to prayer with the, with the disciples and the apostles. But also notice this, Mary's there. She's not a leader. <laughs> They're not asking her what to do. Peter's standing up and telling them what to do. Mary is not being worshipped. And some churches and priests and pastors teach that Mary is a co-redeemer with Jesus. Co-redeemer. That's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Mary is blessed, but she's not deity. She was with sin, regardless of what a papal bull in I think the 1500s came out and said. She was like you and me. She needed a Savior, and she's praying with them to the Father. This is the last time she's mentioned in Scripture. You don't read about her anymore. She never exalts herself. Scripture never exalts her as deity. Where did that come from? You go back to Genesis 10, there was a guy named Nimrod. And if you look, Nimrod was the grandson of Ham. And uh, he was, I think he was the grandson of Ham. It may have been the great-grandson. He's either the grandson of Ham or the great-grandson of Ham who was the son of who? Noah. 
right? So remember how righteous Noah was? And then Nimrod comes up, and guess who's the leader of Babel? Nimrod. He was married to a lady named Semiramis. Now, Semiramis was a priestess of idols. His wife, was, idol worship really began at the Tower of Babel. And Semirama, there's a tradition, a story that goes back, and you can look these ancient religions of Babylon. Semiramis had a son, not by Nimrod, but by golden rays of sunlight. A virgin birth. Does that sound familiar? Satan is counterfeiting already before it even happens. And so, Semiramis has a child named Tammuz. You ever heard of Tammuz? He's in the Bible. The mother-child cult started right there with Tammuz and Semiramis. And Tammuz supposedly was killed by a wild boar. Semiramis wept and fasted and wept for 40 days. And then, guess what? Tammuz resurrected. And after that, what began to happen is you began to have a period of weeping and fasting for 40 days that was the precursor to Lent. And what happens in the 300s, the the Catholic Church said, we're going to model Lent after the 40 days of fasting in the desert because this stuff was already going on. The fasting and 40-day giving up stuff, but it was pagan worship. And it's known by different names in other cultures. In Egypt, it's Isis was the mom. Osiris was the son. Same story. It's just played out in a different culture. In Rome, it was Venus and Cupid. In uh, Greece, it was Aphrodite and Ares. And, and so, in Phoenicia, it was Baal. It was Asherah was mom. I mean, in back, Baal was the son. But the same idol worship for all of them revolved around the Semiramis mother-son cult-like. Same stories. You can go back and read all about it in, in those cultures and see what it evolved around. And it may be some subtle differences, but it's bottom line, very similar. Now, why is this important? And why do I bring Mary up? Because she's here. This is the last time she mentioned, she's mentioned. And do you know what Mary's called? The Queen Mother. Have you ever heard her referred to as the Queen of Heaven or the Queen Mother? Flip over to uh, Jeremiah chapter 44 real quick. Referred to as the Queen of Heaven. That did not start with the Catholic Church in 300 A.D. Look at verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods... And all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Think about that for a second. What, what did they just tell Jeremiah? We ain't listening to what you got to say. But we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to who? The Queen of Heaven. 
and we will pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings, and our officials. They were steeped in idolatry to, quote, the queen of heaven. This didn't start with the Catholic Church. It goes back way before that. Now flip over to Ezekiel 8. Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel is talking about abominations in the temple. Well, I'm sorry, what's Ezekiel where? 8, chapter 8. Verse 12. 8, 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. This is the temple. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? you will see still greater abominations than this. There it is in the Bible. Tammuz. Where's the backstory about Tammuz? Oh, you have to go look in, in ancient. It's not in the Bible. Okay. But his name's in the Bible. The Queen of Heaven's in the Bible. You have to go and do look in Babylonian history. Um, uh, Babylonian history of Nineveh and... Um, And just go and research Tammuz and Semiramis. And like I said, there's variations, but the bottom line is that's where Lent started. Lent started with a 40-day period of weeping over the death of Tammuz. And they were doing it in the Bible. You see them doing it there. Now, how many of you guys knew that? I didn't know that. And I'm like, Tammuz? I've never heard of Tammuz before. And I've read that Ezekiel passage at least 100 times in my life. What I want you to notice is that the Queen of Heaven is in Jeremiah. Tammuz is over in Ezekiel. This is stuff that was going on way before 300 A.D. But what has happened now is they've kind of taken Lent Back in 300 A.D., I think somewhere around there is when they decided to let it symbolize Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. But there were a lot of other pagan practices that got picked up by the Catholic Church from that worship, that mother-child cult worship. One of them was um, worshiping images praying to images of the dead people. You notice, what did it say in back in, uh, was it Ezekiel or Jeremiah, about the, the pictures? That, you know, they think that what they do in the dark, nobody sees in their rooms. There were pictures. And purgatory was something that evolved out of that belief, that worship, that cult mother-son worship. So, Mary's never seen again in Scripture. After this. And so, Marian idolatry 
is something that a lot of people get upset about if you because they 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 have so bought into it and it's been indoctrinated into their mindset and their way of thinking that when you tell them it's not biblical they get upset it's incorporated in a lot of their worship and so they go back and here they are in the upper room the disciples are there it says other women probably cleopas and uh, Mary Magdalene are there. Who you know? There's there's several women there, but they're not all 120 people in the upper room. These people are there: the disciples and the mother of Jesus and James and John, uh, Jude and the other Marys and other women are there. But they keep going in and out to the temple. They go to the temple and pray. And, and praise God there, and then they come back and spend the night probably in the room or hang out in the room, the upper room. The upper room is a Sabbath day journey right inside the eastern gate. And that's where they were. And don't miss the fact that they were following Jesus with an abiding heart. They were obeying. He said, go wait, don't start doing it until the promise of the Father comes on. So that's what they're doing. But they also have a change here in Peter you see in verse 15. They begin to see their circumstances through a scriptural lens. Look at what Peter says. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So I don't believe when he's doing this, he's in the upper room. Because if you've ever seen a Jewish house over there, there's no way you're going to get 120 people in that room. Where are we in the Bible? I'll say again. We're in Acts 1, 15. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, he validates David as being inspired, but he does something here for the first time. He's never done this before. He sees his circumstances through Scripture. Who taught him to do that? Jesus. He's emulating Jesus here. He says, brothers, and he's pointing them to the Scripture. What did Jesus do? 90% of what Jesus said was always pointing back to Scripture, to a specific text. So he takes them back and he says, listen, don't get distraught about Judas. That had to happen. Because think about what could have happened during this moment. They get together after Peter denied him three times. They get together. I mean, think about it. Jesus had been on the earth for what? 40 days. It's kind of like when the kids have the parents at home. The kids are fine, but then the parent leaves. Then all the bickering starts to happen, right? So can you imagine the potential there to blame? How come you didn't know? You're supposed to be the leader. How didn't you know it was Judas, Peter? Why did you deny him? Why did you leave? Well, I left because you left. You can just hear the... And, and that's not what happens. Peter stands up and says, Brothers, listen, all this had to happen to fulfill Scripture. God's plan was unfolding. Judas was part of God's redemptive plan. I see that now. That's what he's saying. He, he talks about his share in the ministry. You know what Judas's share was? To be a betrayer. Think about that. John 6, 70, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, yet one of you is a devil? In other words, He knew who He chose. He knew that. 
In John 17, 12, he says, Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that Scripture might be fulfilled. Scripture might be fulfilled. Psalm 22, Psalm 55, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 53. All those prophecies about his suffering, his betrayal, his crucifixion, all those things had to take place because it had already been told. And here's the thing that we take away from that. God's plan is unstoppable. Pontius Pilate can't stop it. Herod can't stop it. Nobody can stop it. No political system. No injustice. And you look, and you think about Judas. I mean, think about Verse 19, Akeldama, where it's where the Kidron Valley and the, uh, the Hin- Valley of Hinnom meet. And it's called, the, it's called the Valley of Blood, the Field of Blood. And it says over here, just real quick, it says that this man acquired a field. He didn't buy it. Remember, go back to Matthew 27. What he did, he took the money back and he said, I've betrayed the Son of God. Is that what he said? Did, it, did he say, I betrayed the Lord Almighty? No, he said, I betrayed innocent blood. He never acknowledged the deity of Jesus. Even when he was, quote, repentant going back, he wasn't repentant in a godly way. He was worldly repentant. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But he's one of those guys from Matthew 7... He's going to say, Lord, I did this and I did this. Depart, for I never knew you. And notice, I'm going to skip down to verse 25 real quick because it says, Judas, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. You know where his place was? Hell. His place was hell. Did Jesus make him go there? No. Judas was selected and he had a ministry, but Judas chose to go there. So, follow Jesus with an abiding love. That's God's man. See the circumstances through a scriptural lens. That's God's man. But finally, chosen and called to serve a sovereign Lord. He says in verse 21, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out, beginning from the baptism. Stop and think about that for a second. That goes all the way back. Think of how that limited the field of who could be there. I mean, how many people do you think were actually there when Jesus was baptized? I mean, that that goes back. So it, it knocks out a lot of people. And they had to have seen the resurrected Christ. There's another filter. So you would think with those filters, they would have said, okay, if somebody's met those two, they've got to be the one. But they had two that they put forward. Why didn't they just choose? Because it wasn't going to be human-centered. And so they cast lots. They did what had happened in the Old Testament. They cast lots. And they prayed before they did. It said they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Who do you choose? Because God's men are chosen and called to serve a sovereign Lord. 
He chooses us all for unique purposes. And I want to just reiterate, to be an apostle, big A apostle again, you had to be a witness of Jesus, His life from the time of the baptism. You had to be a witness of the resurrection and you had to be personally chosen by Him. Now Paul fit two of the three, but he didn't fit the first one. But we know he fit two of the three. But Paul had a unique apostleship. That's why Luke validated him comparing him with Peter a lot as far as putting, they both were in prison and released from prison. They both healed crippled people. They both raised the dead. They both preached to Gentiles. They both preached to Jews. They had so many similarities and Luke is validating he is an apostle, but he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And we know that because when Ananias, God told Ananias, he's a chosen vessel to take that message to the Gentiles. And so, why did they have to have 12, guys? Why did they need 12? Why did they add another one? Because what was about to happen in 10 days? Pentecost. And it was one of two required feasts that every man who was Jewish had to attend. They had to come from everywhere. How many tribes are there in Israel? There's not 11. So they had to have another one. And so because of the feast, they had 12. Those 12 men on that day were preaching the gospel, the repentance and forgiveness of sin, and all these people heard it in their native tongue. People from all different countries. These were known languages. This wasn't babbling. This was not just gibberish. This was known languages. These people heard the gospel in their own language. And here's the thing. There are actually people that have taught that Matthias was a mistake. Peter made a mistake. It should have been Paul. This actually out there, believe it or not. Books have been written about it. It was not a mistake. And the rationale is, well, you never hear about Matthias again. Truth is, other than James being beheaded, you don't hear about any of the disciples after this. The only one you hear about is Peter, and then you hear about Paul. Matthias preached over in the Republic of Georgia. You know that? I've been over there. There's actually a monument to Matthias there. He brought the gospel to that part of the world and he preached so convincingly there that they stoned him there. They killed him. He was a martyr. He was chosen, called, and when it was his time to go, God took him out through stoning. But he served the sovereign Lord and he served a purpose. So here's the question. Are you God's man? Are you going to follow Him with an abiding love? If you've not been, repent. Do you see your circumstances through a scriptural lens? If you don't, repent. Do you know you're chosen and called to carry the message of Jesus to those that God brings into you into touch with? To serve a sovereign Lord? Each one of us are sovereignly chosen. The question is, are we going to be His man? Are we going to go to our place? And where is our place? For me, like Joshua said, as for me and my house, it's with the Lord. So, 
Let's take a moment just to reflect. And then, Brad, will you close our time in prayer?